0: Still at Large, Unsolved British Murders. Hello, and welcome back to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders from 1945 to the current decade. It's 12 months later than planned due to a whole range of complications and unavoidable problems, but Still at Large is back. The purpose of this podcast is to raise awareness of unsolved murders and hopefully jog the memory of people who may have been involved or those who knew something about the murder to come forward and give their information to the police so that justice may be served. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved have for whatever reason never been solved. In most cases the perpetrator is still free and still at large. Series 2, Episode 1 The Murder of Anne Noblett, December 1957. Anne Noblett disappeared whilst travelling home to Marshalls Heath, Herefordshire, on Monday, the 30th of December, 1957. She was 17 years old. On the day she disappeared Anne, a student at Watford Technical College, had been to a dance lesson with friends at Lord's Hall in Harpenden. As she left she said to them, I'll see you on Friday after which she caught the 391 Green Line bus from Harpenden to Marshalls Heath. Home life was comfortable. Anne was the daughter of a successful businessman and life with her father, mother and brothers was stable. Anne was, by all accounts, a well-natured quiet girl with no known boyfriend and a few close friends. The last sighting of her was by a friend at 6pm when she got off the bus at the Cherry Tree pub at the end of her road. After that, Anne Noblett disappeared. As her home life was stable, it was immediately noticed when she failed to arrive home, and her father called the police to report her missing shortly afterwards. In the hours and days that followed, large-scale searches were carried out around the area where she had last been seen, the fields and woodlands near to her home. Eventually, the searches spread much further and covered all the woodland in the surrounding countryside. Door-to-door inquiries were carried out, with one person reporting that the rear lights of a car had been seen in the lane where Anne lived at about the time she disappeared. Late December is a dark time of year and by 6pm it would have been as dark as night. There is some debate as to whether Anne would have willingly got into a car with somebody she knew. At the time, she was learning to drive. From what is known about her, it seems highly unlikely that she would have gone off without informing her family, leading to the conclusion that this vehicle Sometimes described as a black car, was driven by the person who forcefully abducted her. The investigation was led by Detective Chief Superintendent Robert Elwell of Hertfordshire CID, and then assisted by Detective Superintendent Richard Lewis of New Scotland Yard's murder squad. Scotland Yard being called in was standard procedure in the 1950s. On January 31st in Woodland near to Whitwell. Anne Noblett's fully clothed body was discovered by two brothers walking their dog. She was described as appearing to be asleep when she was found. The two young men were sensible enough not to approach her body and instead went to call for the police. Before long, the area had been cordoned off and the Home Office pathologist, Francis Camps, was on site inspecting the scene and her body. Anne was fully clothed, including wearing her glasses, which had been put back onto her, although not correctly. It was determined that Anne had lain there for around two weeks. This was somewhat problematic. The area where she had been found had already been searched immediately after her disappearance and had undergone a further, more extensive search on New Year's Eve without any sign of her being there. It was determined by Cramps from the evidence of the plant growth around and under her body that Anne had been there for about two weeks. During the post-mortem carried out by Camps, it was discovered that Anne had died of asphyxia due to compression of the neck, but manual strangulation was ruled out. As the files are closed until 2051, it is not known what led Camps to describe the injury that had killed Anne in this way, and it implies that she had been killed with either a ligature or by a weight placed on her throat. What was clear from the examination of the body was that there had been a sexual assault and that Anne had been undressed and redressed after death. The buttons of her underwear had been buttoned up incorrectly. It was also clear to Camps that Anne's body had been refrigerated or frozen in some way prior to being placed in the woodland. This led to the case being dubbed the deep freeze murder in the press. Refrigeration or freezing of the body would make the timing of her murder almost impossible to state with any certainty. Anne's personal belongings were found along with her body, and there was another intriguing element. Anne was found with 30 shillings, which, by the standards of the day, was a lot of money for a teenage girl to be carrying. It is speculated, online, that the murderer placed the money there to lower the chances of being hanged for the offence, Although the death sentence had been removed for all but a few crimes, theft as a part of a murder was sure to get the judge reaching for the black cap. The money was inspected for fingerprints, but none were found. During the course of the investigation, more than 2,000 people were interviewed and more details of the black car emerged. Witnesses stated that in the days prior to Anne's disappearance, the black car had been sighted several times and a description of the driver was given. He was a middle-aged man wearing horn-rimmed spectacles. After her abduction, neither the man nor the car were seen in the area again. Taking advice from camps in regard to the body having been chilled or frozen prior to the deposition, all refrigerated units, factories and farms were searched in a 30-mile radius. No evidence was found at any of them. A number of persons of interest were interviewed, including a refrigeration expert, but all were cleared. The motive for her murder seems to have been purely sexual. Anne had no boyfriend, nor had she any worries or cares, and the case remains unsolved. The case was, however, not without arrests. In the immediate aftermath of her disappearance and death, Anne's family, the family of the young men who discovered her, and the police, would receive telephone calls either threatening them or making claims to have knowledge of the case. Police went on to track down and arrest a 25-year-old man called Walter Edward Nunn for making some of the malicious calls and he was sentenced to six months in jail. However, the calls did not end with his arrest and have continued. Police state that they are firmly convinced that the callers are coming from a phone box in Luton. If this is a hoax call, then the caller has a determination to keep calling for 60 years if it's the same person. The case is still periodically reviewed with the last review in February 2017, although the police have admitted that it is possible that Anne's killer may have died in the intervening years. Why then, you may ask, should this case be covered? For one, it's possible that the killer is still alive Or a relative of his may be aware of their involvement in the case and should want to see the case closed and answers given. Who could have been responsible for this terrible crime? The suspects are surprisingly thin on the ground. And although there is speculation online about the murder of 18 year old Mary Keck in Colchester being linked to this killing, the behaviour of the murder is different. Mary Creek was savagely beaten about the head before being dumped in a ditch ten miles from where she was last seen. The similarities in the case are that both were young women in their late teens and had both alighted from a bus shortly before being abducted near to their destinations. There was a period of time between them disappearing and them being found. But there the similarities end. It is, sadly, not the only case that has a near identical set of circumstances. Although the files on Anne's murder are sealed until 2051 we know that cause of death was asphyxia due to compression of the neck but not because of manual strangulation. This is an important distinction. Manual strangulation refers only to the murderer using their hands to strangle the victim, whereas compression of the neck can relate to the use of a ligature or limb being used. There are several unsolved cases from this period that seem to have this in common. In the very first episode of this series, the case of Jean Townsend was looked at. Jean was a young woman who had been making her way home on public transport and had reached a stop before beginning to make her way home. Jean was found the next morning having been strangled with her own scarf and her underwear had been removed before being folded and placed next to her. Whilst it is not a perfect match for Anne's murder, there are similarities. Jean was murdered in 1954 three years before Anne. Four years after Anne was murdered, there was another very similar case. Linda Smith was a 12-year-old girl who had been sent on an errand to a local newsagent in Earlscombe, Essex. It was a journey Linda had made on many occasions, and the round trip only took her, normally, 15 minutes. That day, January 16th, 1961, Linda was seen by several people as she made her way to the shop and had stopped to look through the newsagent's window, but did not enter the shop. Shortly afterwards, she was seen talking to the cobbler on the other side of the road. Linda then vanished. Four days later, on the 20th of January, Linda's body was found in a field, 18 and a half miles away in Polstead, Suffolk. She had been strangled with her school scarf. Although several people were interviewed during the investigation, Linda's killer was never apprehended and the case remains unsolved. The parallels with Anne's murder are striking, abducted from an area she knew well and deposited miles from her last known location, sometime later having been killed by asphyxia due to compression of the neck. Whilst there is no speculation as to whether Linda had been refrigerated prior to deposition, it is striking in that the abduction and dump sites were similar. Even the murder of WAF Rita Ellis, who was abducted from RAF Halton in Buckinghamshire in November 1967, bear more than a passing similarity. Rita was stationed at Halton and had arranged to babysit for a wing commander. Arrangements were made for transport to collect her from outside of the dormitory, or block as it is known, to the wing commander's quarters. At around the time she was due to be collected, a dark coloured vehicle pulled up and due to poor lighting in the area at the time, the driver was unseen. Rita got into the car and promptly vanished. She was found the following morning having been strangled and sexually assaulted. Although the case went cold, advances in forensic technology have enabled Thames Valley Police to obtain a DNA profile of her killer. Whilst there are differences with the cases of Ann Noblet and Rita Ellis, especially in that the culprit responsible for Rita's murder was most likely someone who had access to RAF Halton, both cases remain unsolved. There is another case, much later, that also carries the same hallmarks as Anne's murder, and, indeed, Jean Townsend's killing. In 1971, Gloria Booth was found strangled with her scarf in Ryslip, not far from the murder of Jean Townsend. Whilst there was a difference in that Gloria had been stripped, the same asphyxia due to compression of the neck was the result of her death. Whilst it seems that there is a long gap in time between the two killings, in reality, it is merely 14 years. The two cases that bear the greatest similarity for me is the killing of Anne Noblett and the murder of Linda Smith. If these were committed by the same offender, who could it have been? The usual suspects in cases such as this where a pattern of offending and murder seem to match would point to someone such as Peter Manuel, but the timings for his involvement with Anne Noblett's murder are off. It was only a short period of time between her murder and his arrest in Scotland. He had been hanged by the time Linda Smith was murdered. There is tenuous speculation that he had an accomplice, but it is based on a lot of supposition. Could it be, then, that the killer was Raymond Leslie Morris, the monster of Cannock Chase. Whilst it is known that he was a predatory paedophile who abducted girls prior to violent sexual assaults, these two cases could be early examples of his crimes. School-aged girls were his preferred victims, and there is a possibility that the murder of 15-year-old Mavis Hudson in December 1966 has certain similarities to the pattern of offending Morris exhibited. At the time of Anne's murder, Morris was 29. As the invention of the teenager hadn't really begun in the late 50s, the manner of dress he would have adopted as an adult in his late 20s would have been such that he would have appeared to be much older, middle-aged even. He is a strong candidate, but there are problems with him as a potential perpetrator. Where would he have kept Anne's body in a chilled or frozen state? this is the block on which the case for him being responsible stumbles. Then there is the rumour, propagated online, so make of it what you will, that Anne was abducted by someone she knew, a local pig farmer, who may have had the facilities to store her body. Anne was forced into a situation where he had to dispose of it when the search for her intensified. It's plausible as many farms in the 1950s had their own sort of facilities, cold storage, and the knowledge of how to clean a room effectively. Francis Camps based his theory of her being frozen on the state of the contents of her stomach after the 32 days of her being missing. It is possible that he also examined certain fluids that would be present only after freezing, but this is not yet known for sure. The expert opinion that pointed to the delay of the growth in the plants under the body gave an excellent reference point. And although December and January are typically cold months, the January of 1958 had seen some cold weather followed by a rapid rise in temperature, meaning that her body would not have been in the condition it was found. The location is intriguing too. The small patch of woodland where she was found is along a farm track that spurs off a sharp right hand bend outside of Whitwell. A travelling predator is unlikely to have known about the track or the wood. Anne was not a small child. At 17, she weighed nearly 11 stone, that's roughly 154 pounds or 69 kilos, and a frozen body would have been difficult to move around, and yet she had been carried some 100 yards into the wood. According to the reports of the time, no drag marks were noted, meaning that Anne had been carried to her place of deposition. This would have meant that her killer would have been either physically capable of moving such a heavy weight, or was accompanied by someone. Then there's the passage of time between her abduction and deposition. The woods where she had been left had been searched not once, but twice, and the second time with dogs. The location where she was found had been conclusively ruled out, and yet she was left there. This brings us back to the possibility that Anne either knew her killer or her killer, had known of her. Her family was well known and well to do, running a motorcycle helmet production company. Had her abduction initially been for the purpose of obtaining a ransom, which had then gone awry and resulted in her death? Whilst plausible, it is contradicted by the contents of her stomach, which were largely undigested. Anne had died within hours of being abducted and her body was then stored out of sight in a refrigeration unit or freezer of some kind. It seems that the killer was a local as her body was dumped only after the police had begun to switch to searching farms and factories in the area. Then we have the matter of the phone calls. Whilst there was a conviction for them at the time and the motive seems to have been anger at the police having interviewed the man that was later convicted of the malicious calls or at least some of them, the police and Anne's family were not the only ones to have received threatening calls. The family of the boys who found Anne were also subjected to them. The desire to threaten and harass those involved in murders is a curious and distasteful aspect of some people's personalities. Normally however The calls end when the person is no longer getting the same gratification for them. In this case, there have been calls a couple of times a year to the police every year. The last known one was in September 2017 from a telephone box in Luton. This is, by any measure, spectacularly odd. Either Luton is home to the most persistent troll in history, or someone who has actual knowledge of the murder of Anne Noblet is trying to communicate. If that is the case, then it is of vital importance for them to come forward and give the police whatever information they have. Given the period of time that has elapsed, it is likely to be the child of the killer or a younger relative of them. It is possible that they were sworn to secrecy either at the time or as part of a deathbed confession and find themselves deeply conflicted between doing the right thing and keeping their oath of secrecy. It is vital that they come forward to unburden themselves and provide answers to her relatives. Until that happens, the killer will remain unknown and the mysterious caller will be still at large. Some music was by Duke Deck an online music AI at jukedeck.com still at large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J Brambley and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.